Hi everyone, from Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live, on tape, from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the financial technology company LiquidNet. For today's show, we're all together in my New York office. We have Imogen Rose Smith, who's a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And by the magic of aviation technology, we have with us in person, David Bank, who is the editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. It's great to be here. How was your flight? It was a red eye, and it was uh, uh, as good as could be expected. <laughs> okay. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about animals and impact investing. Now, David, I don't want you to hijack the show and just talk about your new designer puppy. That's have, I, have I mentioned we're getting a puppy? You, you've mentioned several times that you're getting a puppy. Have you mentioned what type of puppy you, you're getting? We'll get to that. You'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> Well, it said we want to talk about how impact investors think about animals. Now, as I see it, animals have a relationship with humans in four different ways. First, animals are food. Second, animals are used in research. Third, animals are entertainment. And finally, animals are wildlife. So Imogen, when people think of impact investing, they don't usually think of animals. But how do they fit into this? So I think the relationship between animals and impact investing is actually a pretty interesting one. When you think about where impact pulls from, it's animals aren't at the forefront of your mind. So, you know, it was a lot, a lot of where impact investing comes from is sort of community investing and community and development and really how do we help people. The other side of this is the environmental conversation and animals are obviously part of the environmental conversation, but normally they're sort of in the background or sort of hypothetical. You know, it's the polar bears on the ice cap. And it's not how do we directly help the animals. And I think there's often this sense that one cause comes at the cost of another. So why would you talk about helping the animals in Africa when you should be talking about helping the people? Like, why should you talk about eating happy cows when we need to make sure that everyone has food? So a lot of times, you know, it's not part of impact. And if you think about sort of, you know, the people who are the real leaders in impact investing, Rarely will you hear them talking about animals. But what I've noticed over the last year is a real sort of ramping up in the conversation about animals, the interest in animals, and its connection to impact investing. So I think, in fact, there are quite a few points where you can see animals being a big part. So, for example, somebody like Jeremy Collar, the Collar Foundation, his big passion is ending the consumption of farm-fed factory meat. And it's really an animal welfare and animal rights issue. Similarly, there are other funds developing that have an animal impact angle. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about sort of the elitism of impact and how that can be a problem. And actually, surprisingly, animal rights tend to be a lot more egalitarian. So everyone cares about animals, or a vast number of people care about animals, and there are a lot of ways that you can have an impact on animals and having animals live a better life. So in some ways, it's a very fruitful part of the impact conversation to bring a lot of people into the discussion and have a good effect. David, what do you think about this? Have you, in all your conversations around impact investing, how, how often does the concept of animals or the topic of animals come up outside of talking about your new designer pet? Well, I've been thinking about this. There's obviously the food angle. And, and as Imogen said, there's an apparent contradiction. And let's explore whether it's a real contradiction between producing more protein for a protein-hungry world and then treating the animals 
better. And, and as you say, you know, on the face of it, it would seem that people would say, you know, why do we care whether the cows are happy? Uh, maybe cows are not the best example. They're sort of a high on the food chain sort of species in terms of conversion of grains to usable protein. But chickens are winning that protein uh, market share war. And then fish, and particularly farmed fish, and particularly, I would argue, uh, land-based farmed fish, because sea-based farmed fish have some environmental problems that have sort of given them a bad reputation. But there's a sort of new wave of environmentally friendly farmed fish that are incredibly efficient grain converters into protein, almost like a pound of feed for a pound of fish. And if you substitute new kinds of feed that aren't themselves fish, because that's a whole other issue, you can get to an almost perfect sort of perpetual motion machine to create protein, as I say, for lots of rising consumers around the world who want to eat some protein. So the main way that fish, that animals come into the equation so far of what I've been covering in impact investing is how do we get more protein out of better designed, I would guess, I would venture to say, animals. Hmm. And where does this run up against other environmental concerns like genetically modified organisms or, or, or are there other concerns people have about uh, the food systems? Well, you know, the other food-based impact area is sort of at the other end of the spectrum, which is people want to have, a, they want to know where their food came from. They want to know who grew it or who caught it or how it was raised or what chemicals were used or not used on it, certainly whether it was genetically modified or not. And that has tended to advantage small producers who are able to build those kinds of values into their products. And the question is, can that model, where you actually know the farmer because you are now got a relationship and it's coming straight from the farm to the table or whatever, can those kinds of relationships actually scale up and be a meaningful part of the food economy for feeding the you know coming nine billion people? And that to me is where I think impact investing can really be the glue that brings this whole thing together. Because the problem with the sort of sustainable food and sustainable agriculture movement is that historically it hasn't been scalable. So it's, you know, Tom Steyer having a farm with some happy cows and it's just his ranch. And you can't really replicate that on a massive level. But if you believe that, you know, the way to have a sustainable planet is to have sustainable food systems, then we need to figure out a way to shift so that we're not, you know, something 90% of the deforestation of the rainforest goes to producing soy that can then be fed to farm-fed animals, right? So if you can eliminate that, you can have a real impact on the economy. And the, and the end of that chain is your happy cow and your, your happy chicken. So I think it gets away from this idea that, you know, it's all a bunch of elitists going to the farmer's market in Berkeley and instead becomes, you know, how do we ensure sustainable food systems for all? And impact investing, and particularly, you know, my friends, the large institutional investors, can be the thing that makes that happened, happen. However, the activism and the push from that can come from individuals, and that's where I think sort of the passion around animals and the concern for animal welfare and animal rights can really be a galvanizing force behind this, particularly when you combine it with sort of the food conversation and people's passion for sort of, you know, good food and sort of healthy living. I think all of these things can actually come together and work together instead of being opposed to one another. So you're saying that it's not an either or, but there's a way that impact investors can play a role in financing solutions that uh, provide for animal welfare while creating economic opportunity and providing a sustainable food system. Exactly. And you could say that sort of one of the 
the points to, that demonstrates that is the fact that animal welfare was included in the sustainable development goals right that when they did the 2015 sustainable development goals you know animal rights activists are really proud that they pushed really hard and they got that language in there it hadn't been in the previous goals so there's this recognition that if we're to have you know healthy economies of all types then animals need to be a part of that there's another connection that that sort of squares the circle which is in biodiversity or conservation investing where a sort of older model was you know build a national park put a fence around it don't let people mess with nature and therefore preserve habitat for animals and in a lot of cases and there's a lot of research on this that didn't really work you had poachers and whatnot and what really worked much better was finding a way where you could build an economic system that advantaged both the people and the animals, had the people understand that whether it was ecotourism or other sorts of revenue-producing uh, opportunities that included the health of the animals and the ecosystems, then everybody's bought in on protecting those animals. So something that w appeared to be in conflict, actually the solution turned out to be bridging the gap. And that's exactly what the Africa Wildlife Foundation is doing. So they've been doing that for a number of years, and recently they started their own impact investing fund to do it, it's mostly sort of ecotourism and farming, and to, to do precisely that, and you hire so people. So economic development to as an anti-poaching mechanism. Yeah, and to ensure that you, you have a community and people are living and getting off, you know, off, off the animals and the land. So ways in which happy and healthy animals also provide livelihoods as well as food security for happy and healthy humans that's the sweet spot for impact investing. Is exactly. that what your argument is? Exactly. And back to your point, if you if you can't have one without the other, right? To, to solve the problem of the African rhino, you have to give the people who are killing the African rhino something else to do. And so, so I think we, we've hit on, you know, animals as food and animals as wildlife, but how does impact investing relate to animals as entertainment? That was just a straight line to get David to talk about his dog, wasn't it? <laughs> this puppy, we, actually, we don't have the puppy yet, but we're hoping that this puppy is quite entertaining. So I don't know if that's what you meant by that. I, I, I actually I meant actually more, <laughs> more things like SeaWorld and, and, sea and its treatment of animals uh, and its, its backlash and its reaction to the backlash uh, after uh, films like Blackfish that, that exposed the horrible way that they treated their, uh, their killer whales. Uh, it, you know, and SeaWorld is a large publicly traded company. Um, and it, it faced an economic backlash, and investors put pressure on them to change their tactics based on the consumer backlash. And they still haven't recovered. I mean, that backlash was huge, and it, it's 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 been you know they've changed their tactics, but changing their reputation is going to be an uphill battle for them. And that shows just how powerful sort of the animal rights argument as well as the animal rights lobby can be. Well, so it shows that there's an opportunity, as we were saying in a sort of new approach to the human-animal relationship. And then there's also a risk if you don't take that into account and there's a backlash from the public and there's a backlash in, on your reputation. But have, have you seen any evidence that, that that backlash, it's a backlash on reputation that's driving consumers to not go to uh, to, to things like SeaWorld that, they, that has a perception of being uh, cruel to animals, but have you seen investors actually say, no, we want to make sure that we're investing in companies that treat animals well? You know, because obviously so a, a non-impact investor would be very concerned about a consumer backlash to SeaWorld, right, because of that, that just makes sense. It, it hurts their economic prospects. But do you see that coming, that pressure of how to change company behavior coming from investors 
So that's what like Jeremy Collar is trying to do in the sort of fair animal farming rights guys. And they do a lot of like rankings of corporations and who's using the sort of best sourced produce and stuff like that. And actually there was, um, there have been some interesting examples in the UK of where, for example, like Tesco, which is a big supermarket in the UK, was saying that they were using um, farm, you know, good farm produce, and in actual fact, they were doing something completely different. So, so those kind of groups and those kind of movements do exist. They're mostly in the agricultural farming space. And what about uh, animals as research, David? And you know, animals have been used for years by uh, as testing for medical research or testing uh, for uh, pharmaceuticals or testing for cosmetics and the body shop famously you know you know it's part of this conscious consumerism movement where they they had uh, testing free uh, beauty products but do you see that as a as an impact investing lens it's interesting because you know again it's it, it, it on the face of it there's sometimes uh, 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 contradictory impulses, right? For example, there was a, 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 a big interest, um, we've just done a story on a big interest in a kind of transgenic mouse that can mimic the human immune system and therefore is very useful for testing new drugs uh, because the immune system reacts just like a human would be. And, so, I'm and sorry, I'm, I'm, what's a transgenic mouse though? It was genetically engineered, the science of which I'm not completely clear on, but it's a very special kind of mouse and the bloodlines or the DNA lines of this of these mice are extremely valuable for precisely this reason. And they and and the pro testing pharmaceutical position is that we want to bring forth drugs that can treat the you know deadly diseases of the world, and therefore we need to be able to test them on something that actually uh, uh, mimics the human immune system, and and that's going to save countless human lives down down the road. And you know, I don't know that anybody has been particularly defending the rights of these, you know, sort of genetically engineered mice that are that are sacrificed to that to that goal. But do they have? I mean, again, I was talking to the Wells Fargo private bank guys, and they've just launched a suite of like impact mutual funds. And one of the impact mutual mutual funds they have is animal welfare, and basically they don't invest in pharmaceutical companies because of the animal testing. So that's like if if you really care about animal welfare, and a lot of people out there do then that's going to be your thing. And your gen genetically engineered mouse would be a part of that. So, so you're right, though, that, that does that then come at the cost of drug development? Speaking of genetically engineered, can we talk about my puppy? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing about this puppy. Is it, does, does the puppy exist? The puppy exists, um, but is not yet old enough for us to, to take home. Do you have a puppy cam? So when my friend got a puppy, they had a puppy cam so you could actually monitor your puppy in real time and check how your puppy was doing. Well, there is an interesting ethical question here. I'm not sure it's an impact investing question. But, you know, we had we started out thinking, you know, oh, there's lots of unwanted puppies. We should go down to the, they don't call them pounds anymore, but to the shelter. Um, and Do they call them shelters? They call them no-kill... Animal that, welfare that, organizations? Something like that. Okay. And... Uh, it turns out that all, almost all there is in the shelter are pit bulls and chihuahuas, because those are overbred uh, uh, and then you know un, un, underloved um, for a variety of reasons. And there are ways, and there are in fact technology ways where you can get matched up with you know shelter animals that are not necessarily at your local shelter, um, but they're overwhelmingly animals that 
are not wanted for various reasons. And for a variety of reasons, we wanted an animal that uh, was going to be better tempered and not shedding and, you know, lovable but fun and the right size. And we were sort of the sort of animal, con you know, consumer of the future. And it is sort of transgenic. It's a golden doodle, which is a mix of a golden retriever and a poodle. And in fact, it's a mix of a 75-pound golden retriever and a nine-pound toy poodle, resulting in the perfect 35-pound, non-shedding, lovable, but smart, transgenic dog. How did those two get together? I think not the way you're thinking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my dog, George, is a rescue dog, and he is perfect and lovable, although he does shed. Well, that, you, there you have... Do, your, do you have someone in your household, David, that has allergies, or is it you just didn't want to clean, clean them after the mouse? Is there is there a legitimate medical claim you can make towards having this type of allergy? I wish though? there were, but no. It's really just, you know, you know convenience. Okay. Uh, and so what, what do you think about the impact of this puppy um, <laughs> uh, on... on on ecosystems. Uh, I on think it's probably atrocious because, you know, you're brought forth this animal that didn't have to exist, um, is consuming food that, you know, is needed in, in other parts of the world, undoubtedly. Um, and you're spurring market demand for this, for this manufactured dog, too. Absolutely. It's, so it's, it's sort of the word, it's sort of like, you know, in, 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 in decades to come, people will look back and think, you know, how could they possibly have, you know, fostered a a whole market in sort of um, unnecessary uh, parasitical, you know, puppies that that uh, that that didn't need to, to exist. But I did Google image search for golden doodles, and they are really adorable. So, in your defense, they're really adorable. Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Before this just becomes the uh, the pet sour. So, thank you as always, Imogen. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, David. Thank you, and our puppy thanks you. Um, uh, okay, so if you like the show, or if you just like uh, animals in general, please subscribe to us on iTunes or really anywhere you listen to podcasts these days. You can also leave a rating and comment that really helps other people find our show. Uh, if you have any suggestions for us, you can send us an email. We love hearing from you. You can reach us at info at impactalpha.com. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, follow us on Twitter at impactalpha and visit us at impactalpha.com. While there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to keep in touch. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer and cat lover, Isaac Silk. Uh, in New York, I am Brian Walsh. On behalf of David and Imogen, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Returns and Investment. We look forward to speaking with you again soon.